I'm somebody who gets really turned on to seeking knowledge. Welcome to How'd You Think of That with Temple Grandin. I'm Sherry Quinn. And I'm Rosalie Winard. We seek out big thinkers, problem solvers, and curious minds who approach challenges with unique abilities of their own, similar to the way our host, Temple Grandin, uses visual thinking. When I was young, I thought everybody thought in pictures, and it was kind of a shock to me to learn that other people think completely in words, and it makes different ways of approaching problems. We are joining Temple today on Zoom. Hello. Her home computer is in her kitchen, and she has two big posters taped to the side of her fridge. Is that a new cow picture under the Hubble Space Telescope? Yeah, I decided I was good. the Hubble Space Telescope needed a friend. So I've got cattle and I've got outer space together, two things I'm interested in. Temple Grandin talks to Eric Jorgensen, a scientist and distinguished professor of biology at the University of Utah. How you doing? Doing just fine. Jorgensen is a Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator and studies how the human brain works on a molecular level using a microscopic worm called C. elegans as the model. The synapses, the small spaces between neurons that allow the cells to communicate with each other, work similarly and use many of the same genes in worms as in other organisms, including humans. Jorgensen and his students conduct a wide variety of experiments, from genetic engineering to the basic functioning of synapses, the unit of communication that allows brains to work. In one study published in the journal Neuron in 2012, Jorgensen and one of his students, Jamie White, were able to essentially flip the switch of synapses in the brains of female worms to make them sexually attracted to other females. Not only are Grandin and Jorgensen both scientists, they've discovered they also think alike. Together, they take us on a wide-eyed ride into the inner workings of the scientific mind and discuss current threats to innovative thinking. I was just uh, talking to some educators about, you know, what could you do with a student that's uh, having problems online? And then I ask a lot of questions and I can visualize maybe a way to, to help them out. I recommended to one girl that, that she needs to get a job. And then I visualized a good place for that job. You yeah, see, it's, it's not abstract. And I visualize a store that I go to that, that she could work in and it wouldn't have too much multitasking. Yeah, so visual learners versus uh, um, textual learners. And I'm, I'm clearly in that visual learner camp as well. I can, I can usually see the thing that I'm working on and think about it and turn it around in my head until I can see a way out. And when I hear people talk at seminars, they actually, words for me are just confusing. It's just noise. But if there's a cartoon um, on their PowerPoint slide, then I can see that and then I understand it immediately. So I think that's just, uh, there's people's brains are different. That's Other people right. just talk and they show slides of words and uh, I, I can't make headway with, uh, with that kind of, of, of presentation. Now in your thinking, do you think you're more mathematical? Like were you good at algebra in school or bad at it? Uh, I think I was okay at it. With algebra, with math, I could learn what I was supposed to do, but it was mechanical and there was no understanding of it. So no, not particularly good at math. Well, one thing I'm getting worried about right now is that some of the math requirements are screening out us visual learners and science needs us. Yeah, absolutely. You know, math is its own language and you just know the language and work at it. But um, I think experiments really come out of envisioning it. I mean, finding it. 
Richard Feynman was an iconic 20th century physicist. He lived from 1918 to 1988. He received a Nobel Prize for his work in developing an understanding of quantum mechanics in 1965. He could always, he, if he could build it in his head, he could come up with the answer. And I think that that's where science really comes from, experiments come from, is being able to see it. Now in my field, we're getting into genomics for selecting cattle. And one thing that worries me as a visual thinker is, for example, if you overselect that animal just for meat traits, you tend to um, get bad structure of the feet and legs, both in pigs and cattle, uh, where they'll get lame. And I've kind of looked at genetics. I don't know if this is right or not, but I said on farm animals, at least, and even pets, I look at an animal uh, selection like a national budget. Now, if I put everything into the economy, meat or maybe a dairy cow producing a lot of milk, then I rob infrastructure, which might be the skeleton. And then in the dairy cow, she's been selected so much for milk, she's hard to breed. And then maybe you rob from the uh, immune system, the military. Right. Well, I've got the economy, I got the infrastructure, and I got the military. And if I somehow use genomics to make an animal that's big on all three of these things, I probably won't have enough feed to feed it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> because you've now uh, uh, budgeted it out of existence. Yeah, I remember that they had these cows that were super muscular because they were overexpressing some gene that was involved in muscle development. Yeah. Uh, and it ended up that they were horrible uh, cows for meat uh, after all. It was, there was more than just meat um, that had been lost by generating those cows. Well, the thing is, people don't know where to stop on overselecting something or pushing a system. What's the optimal thing to do, not the maximum thing to do? Exactly. You know, I'm, I'm a long-term admirer of yours because I saw this New York Times article once that had the, your redesign of a slaughterhouse. And my father had worked in a slaughterhouse and I had intended to become a large animal vet. And what my dad described was horrible. This was back to this visualization experiment where you were thinking about visualizing uh, how to deal with cattle was brilliant. <laughs> so I've always said, wow, know, know your organism and then you can get the right answers. Uh, so this is exactly what you're saying now about uh, understand the cow as a whole, That's not right. as a part. Well, a big thing I'm getting it's super interested in right now is you know the, the visual thinker that kind of that sees a picture like when I'm thinking about you know different kinds of cattle I am seeing them, or even I'm building something I am seeing it and then you have even more mathematical thinker who thinks in patterns then your word thinker and I'm worried that our education system is kind of screening out some of us object visualizers because some of the higher math they want us to do I can't do right I can't do the math either both determined and armed with encouraging mentors, Grandin and Jorgensen didn't let a fear of math derail them from pursuing careers in science. They worked around the system and turned their visual thought process into a unique ability that set them apart and landed them at the pinnacle of their fields. They explain how ideas and discoveries can come to them when they least expect it. For years I've said we'd probably still be in caves if you didn't have a little bit of autism because who do you think made the first stone spear? yakety-yaks around the campfire. Yeah, 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 that's it. That's exactly it. Getting rid of the, all the people who are certain, who are shouting, who uh, are telling you how it should be done, and you've got to get alone, and you've got to get away from them, and only then can you think about a problem. Uh, and it's like what you're saying. You see it, 
and you can only see it when you're alone, but I can sit in a quiet place and stare at the floor and I can see the problem or mostly when I'm taking a shower. I'm, yep, my head is empty. Warm water is pouring over my head. I think that I'm completely stupid because it's early in the morning and then suddenly the pieces come together. And uh, I can remember moments in the shower where suddenly I had an epiphany about this is what I can do. The yeah. DNA breaks. I can't, what do I do with the DNA break? I want the DNA to hop. I don't want it to break, but it keeps breaking. Why does it keep breaking? What can I do? What good is a break? And then sitting in the shower, I suddenly realize, oh my God, I can change the genome. But with a DNA break, I can put in whatever I want. And so that set me off on a whole different set of experiments because I saw it when I thought I wasn't thinking and I just had water pouring over my head. And that's when this epiphany comes. Yep, I've had the same thing happen. I might be driving on the freeway where there's almost no traffic. Yes. Something where my mind can kind of idle. I've done it in the shower. Also, just falling to sleep, I've done it too. Uh, yeah, the idea will thing. come to me. The dream comes. The thing about driving, it's weird. I was once having to draw, drive. I was in California. I only had to drive maybe a couple miles, make a turn off to my house. And then I realized it was an hour later and I was in San Francisco. And because uh, I, I was thinking about some problem. And I was going, what happened? How did I pass cars? Did I, you know, maneuver? How did I even drive? Because I wasn't there. So uh, it's a little scary, but you do think about things at those moments. What's happened before that is you've thought about the problem over and over and over again. And so every little detail is already there in your brain. And then it's like a word when you forget it and suddenly it appears, you know, 15 minutes later. It's because your brain finally figured it out and spit it out to you at a conscious level and said, you need to know this now because I figured it out. And that's, I don't, under, I don't know what the brain is doing uh, that you're not aware of where it's going through the files and, and is about to serve up an answer. I don't know where that comes from. That's well, I think where it comes from, because I've actually looked at some of the research is the frontal cortex can like put down a, a signal that sort of suppresses stuff. And when you're just idling, the frontal cortex kind of relaxes and, things can kind of bubble up out of the memory files. So it's the frontal cortex that is inhibiting yeah, the rest the of the brain. Inhibits, and when you kind of relax, the frontal cortex is not doing that inhibiting. Because the frontal cortex has to do some inhibiting so you, you don't do stuff like tell people off when you shouldn't and things like yeah. that. What is sleep for, right? This is... This is a fascinating subject. And I, I think, you know, there's this aspect of the dream. And then there's the other aspect, which is the deep sleep. And I think we're finally getting some insight into that. There's this woman, Macon Nadergaard in Denmark, and she has made this remarkable discovery that when you sleep all of the in deep sleep, the cells in your brain shrink and you have this huge space uh, that is opens up and there's this thing called the glymphatic system. It's like the lymphatic system, except it's in the brain and cerebral spinal fluid. And it washes through your brain. And I think what's happening is that the neurons have an unusual way to get rid of garbage. Most cells have, they, they have these highly toxic 
lysosomes and you throw everything in there and you grind them up and you eat them up. But those are super dangerous for the brain. And so you've got to get rid of garbage some other way. And I think I think sleep is flushing your brain. So not when you're dreaming, but 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 no, during no, this deep but sleep. I think there's some stuff with memory consolidation too. Right, and that's also occurring in in this deep sleep period where you have these waves going across your your brain. But the idea that you need a brain flush, I, I think, is really fascinating. That's so that's something that we're going to try to pursue and try to understand. Any all organisms with a nervous system sleep. So it's true of flies, it's true of fish, it's true of humans. So so why, what's the association of the nervous system with sleep? Sleep isn't the only thing organisms have in common. When you zoom way in and get to the building blocks of life, you see more similarities to other organisms than differences. And so we've taken those genes out that are in synapses, the connections between nerve cells, and we put in the human ones, and they work fine. We have all of the same proteins in our brains that run synapses. They're also in nematodes, and they're also in flies. You know, you can study them in a worm easier than in a human. But it is fascinating that all of the proteins are there. They work in other organisms. I mean, why are we, how are we even different if that's the case. Now, on the code for that, when you put that you know, human genetic material in there, was the uh, DNA code exactly the same? Yeah, so the, the genetic code uh, is universal from bacteria to humans. And so, I mean, that in itself is an interesting question. Why do we all have the exact same genetic code? Why you does... build a lot bird... of things with the same building materials. Yes. Okay, let's say you have a set of Legos. Well, you can make all kinds of stuff with Legos. Yeah, it's, it's all the same. And so how did we all get the same genetic code? Why you don't believe in evolution and you think human beings are special. Why is it that they have the exact same genetic code? We well, do? especially stuff like Hox genes, the way out the body plan. <laughs> you know, those, are, those are highly conserved. Hox genes are mostly known for their role in designing the general body plan from flies to humans. They direct where things go, such as the head, legs, and tail. Highly conserved genes are genes that have remained unchanged throughout evolution. There aren't extra copies that evolution can mess around with and alter, because any changes could be lethal. They are also genes found in other organisms unrelated to us. The more conserved a gene is, the more widely it's found across organisms. I looked up some of the research on awesome autism genes to do with sociality are highly conserved, even in things like bees and ants. Yeah. Uh, there's a paper called Solitary Mammals as a model for autism, and that the tigers and the panthers are less social than the lions. And there's genetics there involved with oxytocin. <sighs> a lot of this is, is, is highly conserved. So oxytocin is lower in solitary animals? Yeah, solitary animals would be lower. If panthers and leopards were people, they'd probably be labeled mildly autistic. <laughs> yes. I think we all have mental disorders. Just not one of those that is in a book, right? The DSM-5, you know, where they define mental disorders uh, and say, here's the whatever, 100 mental disorders. But I think when all... you get brain, into where a person can't function... You know, there's things that are definitely stuff wrong, severe epilepsy. And, right. Or you have somebody that never learns to talk. That something's definitely wrong there. But some mental disorders are benefits 
in the milder forms their benefits. Because I've always told autism groups, their brain can be more cognitive or thinking, or brain can be more social emotional. Then I found another really great paper, it's called Genomic Trade-Offs, where autism and schizophrenia, the steep price for a human brain. The same genes that make the brain big also are involved with those developmental issues, and the autism is kind of the opposite to schizophrenia. Um, and it all has to do with the um, genes that control the stem cell growth that make the massively big brain. Yeah, uh, and they're out of control in? Well, they just don't, you know, in autism, you tend to get a lot more circuits in the back than you have people that have a phenomenal memory. And then you might leave some of the social circuits out. I mean, social interactions take up processor space. How are you going to allocate it? And then there's a point where you get something that's really abnormal. But you see, it, it's a continuous trait. Yeah, yeah. When it's slightly geeky, you need to have a medical diagnosis put on it. And what I'm seeing right now is I'm seeing all these grandfathers that come up to me, and they find out they're on the autism spectrum when the grandkids are diagnosed. But in our generation, social skills were taught in a much more rigid way. And people were taught work skills, so that's why granddaddy's got a job and junior doesn't. Because you're able to overcome those things because of social training. Well, you training. learn how to, how to behave because in yeah. the 50s, I mean, you were taught, yeah. at least I was, yeah. taught to shake hands, taught to say please and thank you, taught to have table manners. So this is fascinating. So I didn't know about this. So schizophrenia seems to be caused by over pruning of... No, no, yeah, over pruning. You have a skimpy yeah. network. Yeah. Autism, you've got too many. In schizophrenia, I think it's over pruning and you have a skimpy network. Then late yeah, so that's time. right. This is when pruning and, and at the age of 20 or 21. That's when they get messed up. That's when the schizophrenia right. usually hits. Right, and that's when all the pruning takes place. So you have way more synapses when you're, these are the connections, when you're four years old. And then, uh, then at the ages of about 20, 21, um, microglia come in and they start. This is one of the, I think, the most interesting breakthroughs in the last five years is that the microglia come in and they start pruning away those synapses. Microglia are the brain's immune system cells. They protect against diseases and are especially important during brain development when they help young neurons grow and connect correctly. Through a process called pruning, microglia will destroy weak or unnecessary connections between neurons. With all the good of microglia comes a downside. Faulty pruning by microglia during brain development has been linked to schizophrenia, autism, and other disorders. And in adulthood, uncontrollable pruning has been implicated in diseases like Alzheimer's. You know, if I think there's a lion in my living room, um, yeah, yeah, something's definitely that's, wrong. That's exactly right. So that's yeah. the schizophrenic aspect of, that's of right. loss loss of reality. But you know, I noticed it in my own brain. When I, was, when I was 14 and 15, I couldn't stop myself from thinking and dreaming. And being in classroom was hard, so hard trying not to um, have the dreams coming at me. Uh, and then by the time I got 20, 21, all that went away and I could focus much more easily. So it's probably that pruning. Well, and you also get you know, direction in life because I was a horrible student in high school. And I didn't bother studying until my science teacher gave me the goal of becoming a scientist. And so now studying was a pathway to a goal. You mm. didn't just study for the sake of studying. You studied it so you could do something. Uh, yeah, so another, that came to you late in life? Later. So high school, I guess, was 
That high makes school sense. was the worst part of my life. Absolutely the worst part. Why? Bullying, teasing. Yeah. Bullied yeah. and all bullied all through high school. And I only place I had friends was where there was a shared interest with a, something like electronics. Right, right. I think that that is actually maybe a blessing as well. Is, you know, when you're eight years old, you're wondering about the world and how it all works and you look at the stars. And um, then society sort of takes over and says, no, you should be playing baseball and uh, you should be doing things with your friends. But the, the scientist sort of goes inward and yeah. says, uh, you know what, I don't have time for that. And I'm really not that good at throwing the baseball. Well, how did uh, you end up in the field that you were in? Yeah, I came really late. I mean, I was a vocational art student. Um, and, uh, you know, you have to take auto shop and all that. But I specialize in drafting. <laughs> then when you're at a vocational program, when you're a senior, they get you a job. So, I, But I did that. And then, I, I don't know, I just, and a carpenter and did a bunch of things, like worked as a large animal vet. And then I decided I wanted to do that. And I went to college and did really well and then i was a carpenter again in a farm i worked on a farm. but uh so I, I don't know it sort of accidents happen actually that's what happened i tore my all my ligaments in my knee and i couldn't work as a carpenter anymore and i went back to school so that's what happened and then you must have got exposed to the worms you're studying now you had to get exposed to that in some lab somewhere to get interested in it yeah that was but my dad was a tomato farmer and uh, you know, he really liked genetics and work doing that. And so I thought I'd go into agriculture. So it was genetics that um, I really enjoyed. And that was because of my dad. And then if you start, if you're in genetics at UC Berkeley, where I was, you're told you should pick an organism. And so I picked yeast. And so I started working on yeast and then eventually went to worms. Flies, see, I, worms. I can see that. And I got involved in the cattle industry because I got exposed to it when I was 15 on my aunt's ranch. You know, at some point, you've got to get exposed to something in order to find yeah. out it's something you like to do. But one thing, I'm, one of my big concerns right now is that a lot of the kids that are visual thinkers, you know, like us, are getting shunted into special ed and ending up going nowhere because we can't do algebra yeah. and can't do some of the higher math. And yeah, I think yeah, it's a very, very big problem, and we're losing skills that we need to have. And also scientists are being um, shunted into um, a narrow behavioral response, right? So if you, if you can't um, talk to people in a group, if you can't socialize at meetings, uh, those uh, people are being set aside. You need to be more normal. And that well, is I've what talked, uh, I had a very interesting talk at an agronomy meeting. I was invited to an agronomy meeting to talk about the different kinds of minds. And they were talking about some of these brilliant grad students that got, you know, top SATs. He said they have no creativity. You see the visual thinking, you get more divergent, you know, kind of thinking. And um, a lot of these uh, students are super smart, but they turn into hyper-specialized doctors. And I just found some studies in science and nature on collaboration between disciplines. Specialized doctors in clinical medicine are the worst for not collaborating or citing articles that are outside their field. And then people that work in public health and biology, a lot more interdisciplinary uh, collaboration. And interdisciplinary collaboration is where you get a lot of um, new ideas from. 
But I've noticed just on dealing with my own health problems that some of these doctors are so hyper-specialized, they don't even know what's going on in the rest of the body. They'll prescribe a drug that might be bad for some other part of your body. Yeah, yeah. You get the heart fixed, but then they mess up something else. And yeah, yeah, they're just selecting for the short-muzzled dog and not thinking about the rest uh, of the system. Yeah, that's probably true. Tell me about when the person who convinced you to uh, go into large animal medicine. That was um, uh, exposure to it. That started out, I was an Easterner originally, and I uh, no background in ag, and, and I had a chance to visit my aunt's ranch and got out there. I was originally going to be a psych major studying optical illusions. I went to Arizona State. They were in the height of the B.F. Skinner era. Ooh. I could not buy all of that, that everything in an animal is stimulus response. Yeah, yeah. Because when I was in college, I had a really great animal behavior class from a classical ethology person named Tom Evans. And it was very clear in his studies of reptiles that there was a lot of behavior that was not just stimulus response. And I got interested in the feed yards. I started going out and visiting feedlots. And then I switched over to animal science. But if I hadn't had that initial exposure at my aunt's ranch, that would not have happened. Yep. You know, I always want farm boys in my lab because they're just used to everything being broken in the morning and everything needs to be fixed. And so you have, yeah. you know, the, the plow is broken, the discs are off, I've got to unscrew those, I've got to screw them back on, I've got to weld them. Nothing ever works. And this is the same thing with molecular biology. Nothing works. There's a book, textbook says how it works, and it doesn't work. So you have to troubleshoot. You have to say, okay, is it one of my solutions? So you go to your neighbor and say, okay, I'm going to, here's my solutions. You do the yeah. experiment and I'll take your solutions and I'll do the experiment. And it still doesn't work. And then you go, okay, there's something wrong with me. What am I doing? And so troubleshooting is what you have to do on a farm every day. Yeah. And those people are going to be good molecular biologists because nothing ever works. Come in in the morning, didn't work. And you have to figure out why. Well, it's figuring out how to, how to solve problems. Yep. And not being so single-minded in, in your thinking that you can't think of maybe some divergent ways to, to solve them. <laughs> and remembering all the stupid things you did before. Well, it's been super interesting talking to you. It's such an honor to meet you. I have always oh, been you. an admirer of yours. So keep doing what you you're might doing. Be, when I talk about different kinds of thinking, you might be interested in my book, the autistic brain. Uh, okay, I will pick it up. Okay, great. That was scientist Eric Jorgensen talking with Temple Grandin. I'm Sherry Quinn. Thanks for listening. So who should we be fusing with Temple? If <laughs> fusing with another organism makes something really grand. Oh, no. <laughs> okay. I'll keep a lookout if I see any really okay. elephants, maybe. Who knows? Dugongs. I'm not sure what one looks like, but... They're related to manatees, but they feed... Their oh, okay. All right. Totally opens up and they feed vertically. They, they're like... <laughs> okay. okay. You fuse with the dugong. I'll pick something else. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> How'd You Think of That is a production of the Utah STEM Action Center in partnership with SQ Media. It is made possible by funding from the National Science Foundation's Advanced Technological Education Program.